Today's scripture is from Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to, to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good things does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Psalm 84. Psalm 84, that Phil just read for us. And while you're turning there, I'll go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we we long to come and to dwell with You, God. But here we are, in the flesh, God. So we long to come to You, but God, we cry out to You and ask that You would come and be in the midst of us right now. That You would make Yourself known through Your Word and that You would appoint us to hear Your Word and that You would open our ears, God. And soften our, our hearts to receive your word, God, that we might behold your beauty and your grace and your holiness, that we could long to dwell with you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever wanted anything? So badly that you're willing to forsake anything to obtain it. Of course. You, you do it with your careers. You, you, you toil away in undergrad and then you do med school. Or you plow your way through nursing school while still raising kids. Or you finish your MBA or you go on and you actually do finish out your GED. Of course, you do it all the time. You, you get married. You, you innately, you, you forsake yourself because you say, no, I would rather be with you. I would rather live with you and forsake all of my desires so that I can have that. And then if there's any shred left, the kids come and they just kind of wipe it all away. And you, and you forsake yourself. But you're doing it for something greater. 
That's what we have in here in our text this morning. It shows us the heart of someone, the psalmist, who is longing for the presence of God, longing to come in and to be with God. And it consumes all that he is. And he's willing to go through anything, as we will see, to obtain it. And so you have to answer the question, why? What does he behold of God that is consuming him and drawing him in such a way that I'm not seeing from my vantage point? I'm not seeing it. What's drawing him to forsake everything and to partake on this journey, this pilgrimage to go and to be with God? And since we get, a, we realize that in fact we are made, you are made to dwell with God. That's my main idea. You are created to be in the presence of God. So where do we see that in our text? Well, the verses one through four, we see this longing for the presence of God. Moving on, verses five through eight, we see a, a journey to the presence of God. He's longing for it, but he's not there. He's going to go. And then finally, through the end, verses 9 through 12, we see a, a bold rejoicing in the presence of God. So, you guys, you, are created. Created to be in the presence of God. And so, in our text, we see this longing for the presence of God that's not quite realized. And so we have a journey to the presence of God. And then finally, we're going to wrap it up with a rejoicing in the presence of God. So let's go back to the text here, this first part, verses 1 through 4. The psalmist writes, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow finds a, a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. Selah. As you know, you see it in your own life, a deprived heart is a well from which comes the strongest of emotions and longings. And here is a heart that is, is seemingly deprived. Maybe for a day, maybe for a week, perhaps a month, or for even a year. That is, it's deprived from the courts of God. Deprived from the presence of God. And, and so he's calling out, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And, and you'll be well served to notice he doesn't actually tell us how, how lovely it is. Because he can't. Spurgeon writes on this. His, his expressions show that his feelings are inexpressible when he's regarding this courts of God. And he longs for this communion with God, to, to gather together and to worship the eternal God who, is, who created the sun, the moon, the stars, who's hanging them all up for us to behold His glory and His power and His might and His holiness. This is what he is longing for. He's longing to come and commune with the God who has redeemed His people. 
out of the garden. They, Adam and Eve turned their sin. And here is God calling out to them, Where are you? Where are you? And now the redeemed heart cries out to God, God, where are you? I want to be with you. I want to long. I long to dwell with you. This same God who redeemed his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. This same God who sent his sinful people into exile, but then again redeemed them. This very God, if you are in Christ, who has delivered you out of Egypt, out of exile out of your bondage and slavery, out of your sin, out of your addiction and your pornography, your lust, your guilt and your shame. This very God, who has done all of this, not by exacting more out of His people, but no, by giving more of Himself to redeem His people, that they might come and long to be with Him to gather them together, to love them. He gives up of Himself to satisfy His wrath. And He does it by giving of His only beloved Son. So that we can come to Him with confidence and peace, knowing we will not be turned away. As we see this, You just have to ask yourself, have I longed for Him in this way? Let me me ask you another way. When we were streaming, uh, were you partly relieved that we weren't able to gather? Because you go, ah, I got a couple weeks off. That's all right. That's pretty good. Not too bad. And this, this isn't, this is, don't get, get, don't get me wrong, this is not a guilt trip at all. But we must understand if we're not drawn to Him who is all consuming, all beautiful, the problem is not with Him, but the problem is with us. It's exposing the, the faults and the fractures within our own hearts of how we cannot see this all consuming God who is glorious and beautiful. And if we aren't drawn to Him, it's not Him, it's us. So we see here also in verse 2, we'll keep going. You'll see two things that are inseparable here. In verse 2, I hope you caught it here. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. What is he longing for? He's not saying the holy place. He's not saying the holy of holies. He's longing for the courts. The courts where the people of God dwell. Did you catch this? He's longing to be in the presence of God, which is not separated from longing to be with the people of God. In the psalmist's mind here, you can't have one without the other. They're they're inseparable to have this. And here he is, his his heart and his flesh are singing for joy. And and, and the word here is a run on it. It's this crying out. It's not a a singing like Curtis will be leading us tonight in singing every four-part harmony and you kind of stay in your lane and do your part. Try not to laugh at me when I try to sing. 
That's not what it is. It's this, it's this crying out, like, like, well, like you heard five minutes ago. The toddler is like an infant or a young toddler crying out. It's not just with their mouth. It's with their head and their arms and their feet and all that they have is crying out. This is the psalmist crying out to come, to be with the people of God, to, to, to taste and to see that the Lord is good. That is the heart and the posture of this psalmist as he is approaching the courts. So we admittedly, when I think of this, uh, my reaction this week was, I'm weak. I'm just weak. In, in our culture, we, we don't, we don't, we don't want anything outside of ourselves. We don't want it that bad. Perhaps our comfort, yeah, we'll forsake anything for comfort. Years of our lives, we'll forsake that for comfort. No problem. But here the psalmist is drawing us with this inexpressible feeling of delight. That is compelling him to long for the presence of God. It's in, its own, in a way that is consuming Feeling all of his heart. So what do you do? Well, in a sense, there's nothing you can do, right? You can't, you can't conjure this up. No. You ask God to open your eyes to see this all-consuming, beautiful God that you'll no longer walk in rebellion against Him, but that your heart will be turned and you'll see Him and all of His radiant glory and beauty, and this very God whom you, you once hated and walked away from in rebellion and in strife, now you are drawn to Him day by day, hour by hour. You can't conjure that up. So what do you do? Pray to God and ask Him to reveal Himself to you. It's the only way it can happen. And if you have these desires in your heart. And if they're not compelling to this degree, quite frankly, you have nothing. Even if, even if it's religious in some sense, and they're not compelling you to this degree, you have nothing, and it's going to be exposed eventually. Either on your deathbed, or crisis hits. False religion, it can't give this to you. A Christianity laden with guilt, just telling you to do more, do more, do more, that's not going to bring your heart to long for the presence of God. No, it's going to make you bitter and jaded. And maybe you'll keep doing the right thing externally, but internally your heart is just wasting away. And the, the world, even the world, they can't give this to you. You, you see the futility of the world when you hold it in comparison to a man or a woman whose heart is longing for the presence of God. Hold up anything to the world in comparison to that, and it falls short, and you know it. And the world knows it. So you get, a, you get an awesome job? Sweet. It's, it's going to be a headache, really. It's going to be a pain. You get married, good job in the, world, in, the, in the eyes of the world. Either they leave you or they bury you or you bury them. There you go. 
feel you don't have to nod your head. And you follow all of these strands out until the end. Everything that the world can give you, you follow it out to the end and you realize it's hopeless. And everyone, they just live their lives in quiet desperation. And to be honest, I don't know, um, I don't know anyone who's over 25 who hasn't, apart from Christ, had the wherewithal to think all of this through that has not been driven to thoughts of suicide. Talking to one of you told me, yeah, I would have done it. Of course I would have. We all think about it. I just lack the constitution to actually do it. And this is what the world has to offer you. Indeed, our hearts are truly restless until they find rest in Him. So rather, it's not found in false religion. It's not found in the world, but rather in the God of the Bible. He alone is able to to bring into you this infinite sense of longing. And He alone is able to bring it and fill it up until your cup overflows and overflows. And He's inviting you through this psalm to come and to adore Him, to prostrate yourself before Him, to long to come and to be in His presence that you might see more of Him. To adore Him in such a way that nothing else will satisfy except for more of His presence. And the cycle continues until we see Him face to face. Let's keep moving on here, though. So we, we see this longing for the presence of God. And we can all we can do is just ask that God would reveal Himself. We can't conjure it up ourselves. That's what the world will provide for you. That's what false religion will provide for you. That's what a, a guilt-laden Christianity will bring you. But no, we have postures of of humility, asking God to reveal Himself to us. But we don't have it, and so we go on this journey here. Verses 5-8, through if you go back to our text here. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Verse nine, verse eight. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. So we want to come into His presence. All right, we we make that. We we want to see His grace. We want to see His holiness. We want to see His love. Just. And his, his his radiance just glowing. We we want us we want that, but we realize we're not here. And the psalmist realizes that as well. He sees the the gap between the truth and in our present experiences. He sees that, and he longs for the presence of God, and to make it to into his temple, into the courts. But he's not there yet. He's in Bethlehem. He's in Beersheba. He's in. Capernaum, he's in Hebron, he's at work, he's at home. And he's everywhere, but he's nowhere because he's not in the presence of God. 
So he's on a pilgrimage. And he sets his face. And he forsakes everything, everything that's behind him. And he keeps moving forward. And his longing, his longing is to be in the presence of God. I hope you're grasping this. That he's willing to forsake and push aside everything, every desire. Forsake himself, forsake everything to come into the presence of God. Can't you see it in your mind's eye? This beautiful, shining light. This city on the hill where the presence of God has come and filled the temple with consuming fire. And it's drawing the people of God. They don't don't quite know what's happening, but they know their feet are moving and they must keep going. And then those in Hebron in the south, they start coming up. And then they gather with those in in Bethlehem and they keep heading north into the temple. or or They leave Capernaum and they go to Magdala. And they keep coming south. They swing over to Nazareth. They gather more. And the people of God are slowly, slowly, undauntedly, but slowly, step after step after step, gathering together and coming and coming into the presence of God. And you see here, look at the language. It's plural. Blessed are are those, not Him. Blessed are those Whose strength is in you? As they go through the valley of Bacchus, they go from strength to strength. The pilgrimage is a communal event, my friends. It's a communal event. And together they go through the valley of Bacchus. That is the, the valley of, of weeping. And not to diminish their pain, but it seems as though this valley of of weeping has become, in the midst of their journey, it's become a place of springs. And you see how the people of God and everything around them is being transformed. And they go on from strength to strength, increasing in number and vitality as they go on encouraging one another with songs on their journey and conversations as they go on knowing that they are drawing ever closer to Zion and into the presence of God, and everything they've left is getting further and further behind them. All the trials that seem insurmountable, they look like little bumps in the past. And God is bringing them closer and closer to themselves. So this is a communal experience. This pilgrimage, according to the psalmist, as they are coming together. And they together they would sing the Psalms of Ascent as they arise and get closer and prepare their hearts as a people to come into the presence of God. So individually, yes, individually they're forgiven, undoubtedly. But it takes place in the setting or in the context of the community. So... You see this, this journey, it's the Christian life, is it not? But it's not only the journey of your life, friends, this is the, this is the story of the Bible. You go in the beginning, and here is God dwelling with His people in this perfect union, both of them. Perfect communion with each other, perfect communion with God. 
That's where God dwells, and He's with them. And then we have this, this physical temple, this tabernacle, and then this temple as well. And again, you have this communal experience about coming in to the courts. Individually forgiven, but it's a corporate experience. And then this, this temple is destroyed, okay, and they're sent into exile, but this longing for the people of God to gather together, it can't be stomped out. Sure, you can destroy a temple, no problem. We're going we're gonna to make synagogues. We're going to start gathering together in synagogues, and you see them popping up wherever the people of God are spread all over. Christ comes. And he gives us the perfect understanding of what it is to live this Christian life. And it's often contended in our our Western uh, individualistic culture that, that the Christian life is a life of solitude somehow. We have our, our clean categories and we're actually able to separate our communion with God with our, from our communion with other people. Well, after all, didn't Jesus go and pray by himself? Didn't he encourage us in the Sermon on the Mount to go into our closets, apart from the communal experience, and just pray and commune with God? Well, yeah, he did. But look at the language. Christ left. He's always leaving. As if that's the normative status. That he's typically, he's always with his people, his disciples. And he's leaving them for a short while to go pray and to be with God. And then he comes back. It's not as though he's typically praying, 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 and he would leave this prayer to go with the people and then to go back to prayer and solitude. No. It's a communal experience, my friends. This longing for God and longing to be with God is synonymous with, the psalmist is teaching us, a longing to be with the people of God. You see that in the the life of Christ. Okay, then go on into, into the early church, then this keeps going on. As Luke writes, when the day of Pentecost arrived, where were they? They were all gathered together in one place. Okay? All gathered together. Chapter 3. And Peter and John were going up to the temple, again, gathering together, longing for the courts of God. There's there's a numerous, I'll I'll just read three of them here. And many signs and wonders were done, they were done regularly among the, 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 the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, gathering together the people of God even in the early church, longing for this, continuing on to meet in the temple. And the persecution that's, that's arising in this early church, it's not only because of their message, but it's their reluctance to not, to, to not set aside meeting together. They said, they say, just go, just Go do it by yourself. No, we're, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it publicly. We are going to publicly gather together in the temple. It's not just their message of Christ crucified. Yeah, that'll get you killed. But the fact that these indignant Christians keep gathering together. Yeah, there's a ton of excuses they can make about their children and this and their careers or whatever it might be. But no, they push it all aside because there's something greater that matters. And they show their love for God 
is displayed in their love for each other. And that can only be acted on when the people are gathering together. Okay, so then, well, what about us? Sounds great, uh, but there's no temple now, uh, certainly. Uh, where is the temple of God? Well, Paul addresses this in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2. I'll pick it up in verse 19. He says, so, longer, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members in the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that is in Christ, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you were also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you want to go to the temple? Come to church. You. You guys. Not individually. Yes, that's true. Collectively. Don't lose sight of that. You guys are the temple of the living God. That God is, is structuring you, knitting you together, building you up on Christ as a cornerstone. The, the apostles and prophets as the foundation being built upon that. You guys are the temple where God is dwelling. So how are we going to live out this pilgrimage as we're going on? Well, we do it together as a church. As a church, we go through the valley of Makkah. As a church, we go, we have our hearts set on the highways to Zion. Together, this valley of Makkah and weeping will be turned into a place of springs. And together, friends, we will go on strength to strength as we see the Lord's face in Zion. But it doesn't end there. Thankfully. You guys are great. But there's more. In the twinkling of an eye, our pilgrimage, it's going to be complete. And we'll forever, we'll be gathered with the people of God. John writes in the Revelation chapter 7, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. They were standing together before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits onto the throne and to the Lamb. This pilgrimage, this longing to come into the presence of God will be complete. And you will see God face to face. But you will be with the people of God. Again, it's going to be a communal experience. It's not just you and Jesus, your homeboy, hanging out. No, it's you and the people of God. All of them that God has redeemed as we gather together. So you see the great bookends of this glorious story of God and His people. It begins with God and His people and this, this unmitigated delight and fellowship with Him. And then it ends... But God and His people, all of them gathered together in this unmitigated, unfeathered, full access to God and His glory. We're not there yet. But we're getting there. And we're on the journey. I just want to encourage you guys, as a, briefly, I've had too many tangents. Um, I just want to encourage you guys. 
you, you guys are an absolute delight. And your, your desire to be with God and you, the, your desire to long for God and His presence is evidenced by how often we gather together as a church. You guys are phenomenal in displaying your love of God in fellowship with one another. Let's keep moving on here and see this rejoicing in the presence of God. Verse 9. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. It is He is a provision and protection. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. And the psalmist, he just puts it perfectly. You see that you can have a, a thousand different things. A thousand different days doing whatever you want, but none of them compares to one day being in the presence of God. In fact, he would rather be a doorkeeper in the tent of God, or in the house of God, than to dwell in the comfort, in the luxury, in the house of the wicked. For him, you see the wicked there. They have everything of this world. Of this world. They always have, they always will, but it, it's nothing. That's what we have to remember. But here, for him to wait on the threshold and to peer in and to see Jesus is pure bliss. And this is how we rejoice in the presence of God. Because we know that, in verse 12, that we know that the Lord Himself will bless those who trust in Him. So we have this, this longing for the presence of God, this journey for the presence of God, and this rejoicing in the presence of God. And, the, and we're willing, as we were talking about, we're willing to forsake everything to come into the presence of God. But praise be to God. There is one who has already been forsaken. That we might come into the presence of God. That Christ Himself has taken upon Himself all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our rebellion, all of our hatred. That we could come and in absolute purity come into the presence of God. Friends, delight in this God. And forsake everything to come into this presence of our, of our King. But come in joy in knowing that you don't have to forsake everything because there is one who has been forsaken. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we see the hearts of the psalmist and we see where our own hearts are, God. And we must confess that this... This gap is is oftentimes massive and it seems insurmountable, God. And we can't conjure it up. We can't fake it, God. All we need and all we can beg of you, God, is that your spirit would move in our hearts 
to long for you, God, that we would see you as you are, that we would see you and delight in you as the sovereign king, and that we would gather together in the true temple and worship you and glorify you. Amen. Amen.